Okay. Well. Well. Where'd we start, Mel? <laughs> well, we last met on New Year's Eve for our lovely uh, New Year's Eve <laughs> chat, which was like almost three hours, which was great. Uh, since then, not much has changed. <laughs> Would you say? I mean, BC, BC did something. They activated their emergency operations centers, Mel. In terms of what that means, Mel, why do you think we need emergency operations centers? Or is the health minister talking about that? Well, we have emergency operations centers happening going on right now because our hospitals are filled to the brim. Far to a room with two people dying that requires priests in the same hospital room. This is, it's just so untenable to continue this way. Right. I'm going to read from the, uh, read from the CTV uh, news article. Uh, this is after sort of the presser that they had, which was uh, the BC government is reactivating 20 emergency operations centers across the province in preparation for an expected increase in hospitalizations for COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses. Uh so they're expecting another increase in hospitalizations. Uh, he said the EOCs, which helped the province through previous waves of COVID-19 infections, will be opening re- Monday for a period of at least uh, six weeks. Our hospitals have a horrendous wait time. Mm. It's not getting better. We're inundated. Did you see the tents, the white tents that popped out? Mm. Yeah, Salim had a post about it, Real Reporter, about uh, Mount St. Joseph Hospital uh, having like a tent outside of it where people were sort of under shelter. Uh, Because despite the fact it closes at 8 p.m., there's people waiting like hours after that because they got signed up during the day. And then it's taking, you know, I I saw one at at VGH this week that was like 18 hours once once admitted or once uh, through the first part. So... I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, it's wild. But what I see, a potential issue I see, which I've seen a couple uh, frontline workers note this, so uh, we'll we'll mention them in this as well, is uh, in the previous waves, we had staff that we could have turned to to actually bolster some sort of response. But given that our hospital's, which I've been recording all year have been suffering from closures and continue to right now. I'm quite unclear where we are going to be able to bolster for these additional hospitalizations with without essentially redeploying staff from other areas, which would clearly cause quite destruction in our, our system, which is already uh, not holding on, right? Like it has collapsed and people are waiting just ginormous wait times right now for any sort of services. So imagine if on top of that, that we now had to redeploy a bunch of staff to deal with the increase in hospitalizations for respiratory stuff. It's terrifying. I was reading an article and it was about the NHS and how the hospitals in the UK are collapsing. Oh, oh. It's ugly there. Mm-hmm. And it's wild. What the wildest part, Mel, is when I see people right now from the UK mm-hmm. 
that are like saying it's fine and you're like but literally here's an article of your hospitals collapsing and they're like COVID's no big deal and you're like what is happening right now it's the cognitive dissonance that we've been talking about for like three years it's unbelievable how people just sort of they mentally block out what's unpleasant so they, oh, they sure do and you know and we always wondered right when when you study about world war ii how people could just go on knowing that there even though there was atrocities being committed people dying left right and center right in germany and yet they just resumed as if everything was fine because it was the status quo you can just wonder like this is that's what Milgram taught us in his experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Of manufacture, manufacturing consent, learned helplessness. We are living it right now. Well, in our obedience to authority, and that's why throughout the last two years, two years now, Mel, we've had this mm-hmm. podcast that we've literally tried to focus not on individuals, but on the role of public health and the messaging and all the importance of these individuals at the top is because... Uh, that sets the standard, right? That sets the standard. So it's the same thing why we harped on uh, Premier Horgan when he was the Premier, is that he was setting the standard for how you dealt with these things, and he was not setting a good standard. Uh, and there's expectations of behavior and all those sorts of things. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's hard to imagine how uh minister dix is sort of up there on this is this article's from january 6th uh so two days ago sort of addressing the public saying there's going to be an increase in hospitalizations and there's like there's no action being taken how are healthcare workers supposed to feel how are frontline workers supposed to feel during all of this um there's no sort of government support or um support from leadership to the people that despite what everybody else is living like are bearing the brunt of this continued pandemic, whether they want to call it any other sort of name right now. And really they created the problem by not addressing the main transmission of SARS-CoV-2, right? And that's in schools. There's been numerous studies now published saying that schools are the main drivers of transmission and you need ventilation, you need masking, you need filtration to basically stop. That's how you we exit this pandemic. Yet we have our own former premier, Horgan, who doubled down and said kids don't get COVID, right? He has yet to retract that statement. Bonnie Henry has led us down the garden path saying that, hey, if you sit down in your desk and face forward, you're not going to catch COVID. You're going to be just fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, well she's, yeah. she's still out there just... Saying soap and water, right? It's uh, so that that places the onus of of blame. Anything, anything. She's literally still, despite the fact that we know all of this dramatic variant spread is going to lead to like you know changes genetically, and the fact that we learned from Delta and all these other variants that no, just because it's more transmissible does not mean that it will be less severe. Um, she is still sort of stating the same thing that she said two years ago, which was, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine to, to, do, to get this variant. Uh, well, 
how many times are we going to let them say this, Mel? Because I'm running out of graphs that I can make to fit the number of times that we've been through this literal circle with them. And more and more people die each time, right? Like 2022 has been more deadly across North America than 2020 and 2021. And people are just in blatant denial of that fact because it worked. What public health did worked. They slowly normalized the deaths. They slowly normalized the the words that they use. We've talked so much about language, right? Mm -hmm. About this terminology that lets them distance themselves from what is happening. And now we see it with those deaths and everything is that we have the same public health officers with a, with a response that I would say has failed because we have literally more people dying this year than the previous years. And we're just going ahead as normal, like doing the same thing year four, let's go. Right. Like, so in 2023, I don't expect us to be having any different conversation except having the conversation about how many more people died in the 12 months from now to then. And that's horrifying to say. And I really hope I don't have to clip this because this is what I'm going to clip in January 2023 if more people die. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that that is what has been happening. So why would that not be what we expect? I have it pinned in here. Uh, the current closures for uh, the BC hospital data, which I'm running, which has been almost a year now yes. too, which is wild. Thank you for that. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> like just, I can't fathom that we've been dealing with these closures and that they continue to grow and how normal it has become. Like listening to the episodes from two years ago to now is just like icky. It's icky. Because um, we said, but the, if we, look we at- said everything was going to collapse. <laughs> And we gave them warning and no one. And we, I don't pretend to be anybody important. No. Right. I don't pretend to be anybody that has uh, some, any enhanced education. Like, do I have enhanced training? Yes, I do. Can I look at this a specific way? Yes. But the people that are actually in charge of these responses should be the people having these conversations, not me, but here we are because there's not really a choice in that. Um, But if we look for what's going on sort of right now for BC in terms of closures, which I've pinned in, what do they call it, Mel? What what is this little thing called? Nook? The nest? Oh, the nest. Is that what that is? No, nook. There's my brain. It was going for a little word. Um, So we have the Merit, which sadly has had another closure. So they were sort of on a good streak and not... Not seeing that for a while, but we saw them close from uh, 6.30 p.m. Sunday, January 8th. So tonight until 7 a.m. Monday, January 9th. Uh, we have a new schedule which has been uploaded for the Chimanus Healthcare Center, uh, which has a number of closures across January and then shortened hours as well. Um, the Port Hardy Emergency Department is closed uh, throughout the evenings, extended to January 23rd. Um, so a large part during the days that North Island is going to have very, very limited resources when it comes to hospital. Um, and then continued places which have had shortened hours, such as the UBC Emergency Department. Um, but many of those changes have been sort of... Uh, uh, um, 
eaten up within the calendars. So people sort of pretend like those are the, the normal hours, but were once upon a time, they did have more extended hours. So uh, we continue to see the services that we have, do have sort of get increasingly limited. And um, Alberta is, is of no difference. So um, I try not to talk about Alberta too much because I'm at AHS, but I'll, I'll talk about things that have been in the media and that are sort of public knowledge uh, with that uh, case of the woman that was in Mexico, uh, the 25-year-old who was suffering from uh, flesh-eating disease, who's been unable to be medevaced back to Canada because they have been unable to find any hospital bed to put her in within Edmonton, uh, where she's from, which is uh, really unfortunate. And then all the cartel uh, violence started uh, during that, that week as well. So there's just been, um, yeah, we don't, we're not the country that we once were when it comes to healthcare, right? Like the, the world that we knew uh, even five, 10 years ago, like we knew things were decreasing and getting bad across time, but it has collapsed. This is collapse, right? Like people are, are looking at years long wait lists for essential services and for, for important treatments and just surgeries. We see children with, uh, I just shared one on my, my, my stories of uh, the girl from Airdrie who has been sort of needing really essential uh, brain surgery since November, I believe it's continued to be getting rescheduled and, and clearly something like uh, a tumor in the brain or other brain issues cannot be left for months at a time. That's death. That's a death sentence. We are sentencing people to death uh, because we are lacking services and we won't even take the basic measure of a mask mandate. Right. We're decanting people. I mean, that's a euphemism for sending them home to die. Correct. Decanting. So the goal, the goal with these emergency operations centers, if we put it clearly, it's not there to facilitate increased care. It's not there to facilitate increased quality of care. What it's doing is essentially figuring out how to boot camp uh, the healthcare system so that they can start moving people in as quickly as possible and moving them out as quickly as possible while the uh, increased stress of the respiratory illnesses is here, while all denying that this is really fucked up, <laughs> right? Yeah, like denying our packs love it to the people oh yeah so right? there was that other article so i've been that's right i uh finally sort of in the last week uh my spirits have lifted a little bit and i've been much better able to keep up on data stuff so i sort of did a full overhaul of the uh, bc hospital data including with uh, the different news sources that i track so i have one on like closures and disruption newses which is all about sort of news within bc um, and then the pediatric death news as well. So that that's been um, extensively uploaded in terms of uh, stories and, and data to refer to. And then we also have the data archival uh, tab as well, which has all of the sort of public health agency of Canada studies and, and everything else to refer to so that anyone needing uh, references or sort of anything that's been happening within this sphere has somewhere uh, to refer to. Uh, so if I go to those, uh, that news, we were going to talk about, okay, let's see, this is all ordered by date. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> so much has happened in just like the last three days. Let me, let me just, <laughs> let me just scroll back to the January 1st. Okay. I'll start at the news January 1st. So the first article I have uploaded is about, um, Canada's COVID-19 travel restrictions for China are a political mood, says 
political move says experts. Well, I think we said that the day before, Mel, in our podcast, didn't we? In terms of <laughs> it makes no sense to only stop one country when it is literally everywhere right now. I understand the concerns people have about China. Me too. That's why we all should be implementing protective measures, not just <laughs> uh, putting it at one country, which we already apparently learned the lesson from um yeah so that's funny uh so okay yeah here's the article from january 3rd um which is via uh, ctv news let me just open that up so the title of this article is bc's stockpile of covid treatments growing amid uh continued eligibility restrictions so uh this is one of the articles by penny daflos who's been great reporting across time with bc um and she is talking about so oh my god mel so similar of the rapid tests and all of last year with me counting them and recounting it to you every time i read this and it's just like uh, a trigger of that is in an update provided at CTV News's request Tuesday, the ministry now says the federal government um, allotted allocated 148,000 packages of uh, Paxlovid uh, in total last year, with 18,000 people getting the treatment. What's her population in BC? Like uh, five five point something million, you know, yeah. and but they make it so hard to attain, like difficult. Like I remember when our family was infected, and uh, my partner, he developed diabetes mm-hmm. after the first time we got infected. Yeah, and then we caught it a second time, and he tried going to his doctor because by now he's CEV because he he has diabetes too. They wouldn't give it to him. He didn't qualify. Yep. Well, and that's, uh, we used 12, they've used 12% of the treatment supply of Paxlovid. The rest has remained in a warehouse. So so they're just going to let it expire, <laughs> just like the rapid test. Well, they're just waiting till things don't work anymore, right? Because we've seen with the medications that have worked, some of them aren't working very well with the new variants that are coming out. So um, how many people have had covid that were at risk and just could not access this medication. If it's so great, which is what they were saying and why they said we could take these protections away. Why was this not open to everybody who's been getting COVID last year while they cheered it on and made studies about it? Yeah. So here's my follow-up question. Are we still being studied? How, how, hmm. right? Are, Are they still studying us in BC trying to take away treatment? They removed testing. They have let it rip in schools and have removed all the guardrails off. And now you can't even qualify for treatment. They've put a stranglehold on access for vaccines. So my question is, are we still being studied? China, test the people coming from China, Mel. That's the problem. Right, right. But but the BC taxpayers and Canadian citizens here are dying en masse while she waived ethics for her own study. Right. Are we still being studied? Especially since since they only they, they disbanded our government disbanded basically an a democratically elected college of doctors for mm-hmm. the regulation board. They correct they, they did. And it's just appointed now. Yep. And they passed the law stating that anyone who 
disagrees or challenges who is a doctor uh, that that doesn't agree with the science is going can be charged now. Right. Which is why ethics is such a critical critical piece of what we've been talking about recently is is what when when we go from sort of having regulation by a group of people that are supposed to be bound by uh of ethics to each other right and this is you know let's let's go with the other things i posted up here which um my my <laughs> my uh profession of clinical psychology wouldn't you know mel has been in the news recently have you have you heard anything about clinical psychology in the last few days? <laughs> oh, you know, just this this self-owning Canadian um, who just can't seem to keep his mouth shut. And uh, um, honestly, oh, no. he's just it's just amazing to watch a narcissist self-implode because well, now he's like posting stories of how what an awesome person he is and and why no one should be punishing him well and as you know because i have professional obligations i will not comment on someone's personality like that because that would be outside of outside of the scope of what i'm supposed to say which is the very point of the conversation we're having is okay let's deal with like the really 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 basic misunderstanding and misinformation that's going on mel what is a regulatory body is it the stopper of free speech that we have been hearing it is tell me about it is it I can't believe that all these regulatory bodies have been allowed to go on for all these years stopping free speech not now. Regulatory bodies are meant to regulate professionals who behave like asshats. So if you Correct. behave like an asshat, they're going to regulate you. So if Correct. you find yourself being regulated, maybe stop being an asshat. Right. And 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 because I take my ethics seriously, I think very very much about the language I use when we talk and and sort of what I say and, and what I do and and I want to talk about what the sort of boundaries are of that and, and why there's not a clear answer but the clear answer is that Peterson is way outside of wherever that answer is is that let's start with the fact um, that it is a privilege to be a clinical psychologist it is a privilege here, for here. people to come to me and offer me the most vulnerable pieces of themselves and trust that I will keep that information confidential. But not only that, see them as a valuable human being. That people across from me can see that I think that they are a valuable human being. Right? And... When we talk about what psychologists are doing in public versus not doing in public, I want to highlight the reason why Jordan Peterson is being called out for these things is it's not because it's about free speech. It's because psychologists are supposed to be protectors of vulnerable populations, right? When we look at across our ethics requirements of the Canadian College, which I've posted in here, so that's across Canada nationally, does he have to be a part of that and a member of it? No. No, he does not. 
it's a voluntary organization, also like the colleges, which I'll talk about in a second. But when we look at that Canadian code for psychologists, and I've highlighted a few things on my profile, um, because I talked about this before, when this came up about uh, COVID and the disability community, is the things I highlighted were psychologists, right, are supposed to avoid or refuse to participate in practices disrespectful of the moral rights of persons or peoples, including their human, legal, and civil rights. Refuse to advise, train, or supply information to anyone who, in the psychologist's judgment, will use the knowledge or skills to infringe on the moral rights. Make every reasonable effort to ensure that psychological knowledge is not misinterpreted or misused intentionally or unintentionally to infringe on moral rights. Right? psychologists are expected to be held to a higher standard because we are trusted with the most critical information and the most vulnerable of populations that heck yes, I should have to be held to that standard because I am treated and given privilege and access to information about people in, in a way that most other humans are not. And that comes with obligations, that comes with accountability. And when we talk about, let me take one example of what he has done. And that's the only thing I'm going to talk about. Because also in our ethics is not sort of demeaning other psychologists, even when they are struggling. And, but I want to talk about why this matters and dispel the myths is that when I'm looking at the example of when he called an individual um, I believe, who was trans, a thing, and um, addressed them in that way. For me, it is not even about uh, the fact that it was a trans individual, because A, that's not good, because that's a vulnerable group. And we have a whole bunch of research to suggest that the stigmatization and treating them like this will lead to higher rates of suicide among people. And as someone who's operating as a psychologist, we should have to take that into account. If I know I'm going to do something that causes someone to be more likely to commit or die by suicide, then I should be held accountable for that as a licensed clinician, right? That's the point of the licensing is I am held to a different standard. So my issue is why is he calling anyone a thing? Right. As a psychologist, when we look to these things, why is someone who represents this this profession demeaning other humans, treating people in ways that is harmful? And that is a very different question than simply who he's targeting at, because he's allowed to be biased towards any groups that he wants to be. It's unfortunate that we have clinicians that carry significant bias in a way that impacts their work. But for him the reason that the ethics complaints are involved with it is that he can't have a conversation about this. As a psychologist, I need to be able to sit down with supervisors, with peers, with other individuals who have differing views and say, hey, this is the research, this is what I think, this is how I conceptualize it. That's part of our literal ethics code, including in our colleges, such as the Ontario standards that I've linked. There are processes outlined, like a 10-step ethical process that you're supposed to go when you're making through these decisions. 
And there's also statements about making public information, and it has to be in line with research and the general scientific community. Is there gray area? Yes. But I would say I work in one of those areas where there's a lot of distaste for the scientific answers that I come to. And I do it in a way that is respectful of the humans involved, both victims and perpetrators. Because the goal isn't to have one group that I'm fighting for, and that's the only person I can help, right? Um, And Jordan Peterson has chosen to use these credentials to highlight him being a clinical psychologist in every interaction he has, including that with Joe Rogan, using that credential to then bolster the things he says, which are not in line with our ethics codes, which are not in line with the research findings. If I was coming on here and saying really controversial things about things that had no science behind them, that had no research, that was just harmful to other people, Yes, absolutely. My ethics board has a right to come and talk to me. And that's what we sign to. This is a voluntary license that allows us to be a licensed professional in that provincial setting. It has nothing to do with the federal government. It has nothing to do with anything else. These are people that are tasked to see that we're abiding by the ethics codes. And these people that reported them, because I see also a lot of people complaining Well, these were fellow psychologists. Yes, because in our ethics code, we're required to report them. If we have concerns about significant harm to vulnerable populations, which is exactly what the complaints were about, we are required by our ethics code, the same ethics code that he signed to, to make that report and give the information so that they can then decide if it's not. It's supposed to be dealt with informally when you can. But Mel, do you imagine that... Dr. Peterson has been willing to engage with any professionals uh, that don't meet his ideas about this? Um, I lost all faith in him uh, and saw that he was a com- it was this complete clown show. The moment he doxed the people who wrote okay, who filed a so complaint. I, ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend him in this, which is funny, hilarious. But- okay. I think it's fair to defend him in this, but I think I'll also uh, I'll also kick him while doing it. So <laughs> he released that information with it blanked out, but he did it incorrectly and the document was not locked. So people were able to take the redaction off and then see the information. So did he attempt to not dox them? Yes. Did he do it well enough that they didn't get doxed? No. And that is clearly a problem. But regardless of even that, like, you've seen his response to it. He's not, he doesn't want to engage with the regulation board. He doesn't want to have a conversation about what our professional obligations are. He doesn't even want to recognize that we have professional obligations, right? And that's your choice. You don't have to be licensed in the province. He can go and still do academics. He can go and still do clinical work. He has his PhD. He's Dr. Peterson. But he cannot do it under the label of a clinical psychologist within Ontario. Right? That is the difference. But people are like, he, he literally wrote a tweet that people are trying to take away his livelihood. He makes, like, 
a gazillion dollars from his Patreon. He hasn't seen clients in like five years. His academic work has poof gone away. He's not doing any of that. He's like some weird. Uh, sorry, I won't use that word. He's a he's a uh, some sort of young men guru. I think is what he would probably hawk himself as. Um, and he's using the label of a clinical psychologist to do that, and he's causing a lot of harm. And it is our ethical obligation as psychologists to stand up right now and speak against it. And that is why I'm doing it, and have been doing it for quite a while against some of the things that he has said because um, I have very strong views about the government, about systems, about what we need people to do. But I treat anyone, Mel. I have people who have come to me that I personally identify as racist. And we have great conversations about it and what they think about it. And I give them my viewpoints on it because that's the point of the psychologist is that you meet people where they are at. That is my job. And I have exceptional respect for my job and that is what Jordan Peterson can't do he doesn't have respect for his job he can't understand that you can harm people with what you're doing when I talk about um, the violence by people who identify as incels and the anger among young men I don't deny it Mel I recognize it and I say this is a problem and the, the ignoring of this is a problem and there's all these things that we could do about it I don't deny it, right? Because that's what being a clinician is. Uh, when people come to me and they're, you know, if they're a young white male, I have those conversations with them about equity and what they think they've lost and those things. That's my job. But you, the difference is I can do that. Do you think that Jordan Peterson, when he comes across a trans person, is having a balanced or non-harmful approach from a human to a human. I do not. Because every day in my life, I aim to not cause harm to people, right? Whether I'm in that therapy room or not, because I believe people are valuable. And they have human rights. They have legal rights. They have moral rights. And that is not at the center of how Jordan Peterson is operating. And I support the removal of his license as a professional in this country. So that's my thought on it. That was really long. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. But thank you. You had to get that off your chest. I think it's funny how Pierre Poutine has jumped on. Oh. The wagon has hitched it right up to the bandwagon, just like the freedom convoy bandwagon. Of course he has. So Mel, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's all, everything's just sort of coming into focus. Like, like he, he's really, you said he's some sort of personality. I, I feel like he's more like Canada's Dr. Oz. He's not mm. really a doctor. He's oh, he's a, pop, he's a pop psychologist, which again, I said, it, he's a pop psychologist and he's using those credentials to push some really problematic things that are inciting uh, the alt-right and white supremacy in our country while literally making statements there's no white supremacy in our country that is blatantly false um, by everything that we are taught not true right and it's an ethical obligation of uh, myself and other psychologists to continue talking out about it because uh, it's just not okay it's not what it's not what this profession is for and 
it's okay to want free speech. It's okay to actually want to do whatever you want to do. That's okay. But you don't get to do it under the guise of being a clinical psychologist. Not anymore, anyway. It makes you realize the importance of those things that we have and how um, fragile they are as well, right? Like, this leaves me thinking, okay, well, what does happen if suddenly our our college is, has a more conservative swing, which we've seen on, like, review boards and stuff like that, and I feel in heavily in my heart, which I've always felt in my mom's always mad whenever I talk about this because I've always been this way is uh, if my college tells me to do something that's harmful I will stand back give my license up and write a very public reasoning about why I've done that and then move forward because that's what you could do I could then just call myself a psychotherapist and put my education up there right I'd call myself a non-licensed clinician um, and I could explain that on my website just like Jordan Peterson can do uh, and there are people that willingly choose to never get licensed because they don't agree with some of the structures of the code and all those sorts of things. That's a valid option for people to use. Um, but what he's doing is completely misrepresenting those boards as well right now, which is making it even worse and uh, making it seem like uh, as a psychologist, he should be allowed to sort of do and say whatever he wants. But that's not the case, right? That's not the case. It's interesting because in his attempt to present this argument to dismantle regulatory boards, you got to wonder how it's connected to other regulatory boards with doctors. So if he succeeds, which I'm pretty sure he won't, but he's going to rally people behind him. Right. But they're almost all of his supporters are not Canadian. Isn't that interesting? Like a huge piece of his supporters are MAGA, alt right MAGA, cell oriented um, sort of folks, and not even like there's many people speaking back from Canada, and then these people just yell like freedom of speech, and we're like literally a regulatory board. Like if anybody could get on this understanding of train uh, and yelling at Trudeau, and I'm like, what do you think Trudeau has to do with this? (laughs) Like I just. Uh, they like to blame him for everything. Correct. It's very odd how they have this obsession to Listen, sexually assault I, him and to blame him for everything. I have been a psychologist who has been pushing at the boundaries of, of these things, right, for my entire career because I am very much on the side of social justice. But I think as a field, psychology actually has a responsibility to lean that way because of the knowledge that we have, because we understand the methods that could be used to minimize social harm. Um and not everyone as a psychologist will agree with me, but I think that's what our field has been moving towards and we need to fully secure that. And there is an old guard of psychologists, Peterson included in there, who still think that psychologists get to be these privileged people that don't have to have accountability. Well, and I'm here as a psychologist to say, no, we owe accountability in the privileged position that we are in. We have public trust inherently in the position we are in and we owe accountability. I will not stand up here like public health or like these other individuals and pretend that we don't owe accountability to the people. We do. Which is interesting, right? Because you're holding one doctor accountable, but not other doctors that clearly don't follow the science, violated ethics, 
it's a war. It's an ongoing war. Yeah. Well, and we've seen, you know, you look at the medical boards where, you know, there's been reports for, for Dr. Henry and whatnot for the approach. And um, there's no adherence right now to any sort of ethics within our medical professional and healthcare settings. And it's really tragic to be honest, Mel. It's really, um, it's, it's been a hard recognition for me, even as, as a a professional now to recognize that so many of my peers uh, don't think that they should be held to some sort of accountability or standards for being in the position that we're in. And to me, it just indicates they have such a, um, a novice understanding of the depth of the work that we do then and the, the privilege that it is to do the work that we do and the trust that we've been given. And it even more highlights to me the focus that we need to have on ethics if people don't recognize the privilege that we have and the trust that we've been given. Because when you don't recognize it, you very easily cause harm with it. And that's where we see Jordan Peterson is a, a failure of a recognition to see or even engage with people about the harm that can be caused by his behaviors. And when that becomes a barrier um, to how you interact with people based on your uh, status as a psychologist that you use, you no longer get to use that, at least not in my opinion. I think we should have higher expectations of the people that we like make let decisions about people's rights, about people's access to everything, right? Um, we have to be responsible for that. I'm, I'm just trying to tie this all in together with a situation going on in BC, right? Mm-hmm. The lack of ethics, the lack of accountability. It's year three and well, things are and getting worse. And when there's nowhere to go, right? That's yes. where we've run into BC. Like I applaud the College of Ontario for actually acting on this because I cannot honestly imagine uh, the crap that they're getting right now, just like in terms of threats and, and, and interference and, and the amount of stuff that they must be dealing with right now while they decided to go forward with it. Um, I fully applaud them for that. And it's a rare move that we've seen among our regulatory boards right now being willing to step into it. I hope that it's just the start. And I've said this before, I hope that as the data sort of solidifies and we see more and more information, um, that it will get harder and harder for them to legally and technically refuse to give us these things. Um, But we see that despite whether that's going to happen, the actual social and um, intellectual denial that we see among people will be the much harder, uh, harder thing to break uh, because people really don't want this to be the answer. And and we're sort of seeing that on a mass scale. Uh, Yeah. Even in the conversations I have, right. It's just like, Okay, a basic tenet of science is that you are willing to have a falsifiable theory, right? Like, that is literally the starting point, is having a null hypothesis that maybe your expectation is not true. Um, And we are not even at that basic spot with people, because when I pose the question, uh, you know, well, what what data or like what sort of findings would 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 you believe right like what sort of data could exist that you would believe that would show you um, that this is happening and when I ask them that question there is no answer because there is no data I can give them 
because it was never about that. Right. And that that's a hard place for us to be in because I, you know, that's how do you, how do you respond? If they literally don't want the facts, uh, you can't tell them that they're not allowed to do that because they are, but we all live together and this is a little bit fucked up. Right. But I mean, this is why, according to Dr. Tara Moriarty's new data this week, the last couple of days, BC is at a severe. Alberta is not doing much better. BC has had 11.2 times more deaths than reported. 289 people have died in the last five days. And there are crickets, crickets happening. What is my pinned tweet right now on my profile? It is from the beginning of December uh, making a statement about the excess deaths in uh, sudden deaths and excess deaths in 2023, right? That will be our our point that we can't hide. And it, it's there, right? It, the data's there and the findings are there. She's reporting them. It's not changing anything, which is the problem that we keep seeing is that um, we get caught in that train. And I've, I've spoken about it before, I think, in the Eastern group actually is is that train of thought in terms of thinking that if we could give them the right piece of information or we could just give them, you know, the right understanding, but we're, we're taking that from our worldview. We're taking that from our understanding of uh, what we think is valuable, what we think our priorities are, all those things. So it's not about the piece of information. It's about all the other stuff that goes on with people. It's about what, how they actually value that piece of information because we could give all the research studies to some people in the world. They simply don't think it's important to value other lives more than uh, their current life. And that's just, that is, and I know that makes us uncomfortable. It makes us a little squishy because most of us can't imagine that because we've spent this entire pandemic trying to minimize uh, reinfection chains and minimize the harm that we cause everywhere we go. That's not most people, Mel. And I don't know how to keep telling people that. It's difficult because we are approaching this problem in crisis from an educator and psychological viewpoint. But most people don't have the training that you and I have, right? Like we, at the beginning, we believe, like you said, if we provide enough information, if we push their learning past the bump as in, in, in education, we call it past the zone of proximal development, right? We help bridge that gap of understanding. We're hoping maybe they'll make and do the right decisions, right? We have inundated them with so much information, right? With every single protect the province organization. Well, and, the, and it used to be, remember, if we had the research studies to show this, if we had, well, we have mm -hmm. it now, right? There's no yeah, lack of it. research. No. And yet they are still digging in. So it is no longer an issue of education. This is an issue of psychology. How and behavior change. That's what I'm behavior shouting for. <laughs> and behavior, right? <sighs> so so how do you take this problem and apply cognitive behavioral therapy to it where you can actually help them push past that cognitive dissonance and that blockage where they could actually well modify their behavior? I There's think two two pieces, Mel, and I've said yes. them for three damn years, which is, <laughs> you know, one piece is empathy, right? Is that yeah. uh, approaching it with empathy is always going to be the better way to go because it makes people less defensive. 
right? Which is getting incredibly more and more hard to do. Oh, what was the other piece? I blanked there. What were you saying? How do we help them <laughs> shift the cognitive dissonance into uh, action, right? Of, of modified behavioral action where they will actually take this seriously. Oh, yeah. So there's the empathy, um, but even 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 more, which I think people don't like, The an- this is the extra layer of the answer people don't like, which is um, when we're talking about a population, and let me just like zoom out societally in North America right now so we're not focusing on individuals. There's just heightened levels of entitlement in this society of selfishness, of narcissism, and that's statistically sorted out, right? Like that's, that's showing through in the data is that we're sort of enhancing our individualism of this culture. Um, and with that comes prices, uh, which also means, and if you take the really, really extreme version of this, you know, someone who maybe is uh, a psychopath, right? That doesn't sort of have those connections to people in the same way. Um, not saying that there's never been a person with that lacking that, that isn't a good person, but generally it doesn't have great outcomes interpersonally. Um, we do therapy with individuals who have uh, psychopathy or individuals who've been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. There's lots of sort of, there's not lots of treatment. I won't say lots, but there are treatments available. And oftentimes it's focused on sort of reorienting treatment in terms of the typical way we would think about it to um, how can it benefit that person. So how can we how can we make the goals in a way that will benefit that person? So if they are, say, involved in the criminal justice system, it's about saying, okay, well, in order to do those things you really, really, really like to do, like you have to stay out of prison and jail, right, in order for you to access that. And that's something that you really want to do. So in order for us to keep you out of jail, this is what we have to do. And you sort of backbuild it, right, so that it makes sense for them to be working towards this. Uh and in, in my opinion, we have to take actually tangents of that and strings of that now to induce the behavior change that we want, because we've actually hyper individualized everyone with these, you know, posters up that we just saw in Vancouver Public Health, individual public health, right? Like we've literally tagged the term individual next to public health, which is completely just just an oxymoron, right? Like just like what is happening with those terms? Um and we have to, to modify that to become, again, about community care. And how does community care benefit you, right? Like, how does community care help us in the long run? Because right now, people people don't even care about other people, right? So we have to, like, induce some caring in people um, by getting them to buy in for themselves first. And then hopefully with that will come more societal benefit. But we have to actually make them seem like it's warranted to them we cannot do that in a situation where public health is actively giving them reasons to not be collective. And that is this position that we find ourselves in is that um, there, it's not that there's not strategies we couldn't be using to improve the situation. Well, it's not that at all anymore. It's that public health is actively working against us. Yeah. They've deeply uh, <laughs> planted those, those nasty cognigents and we've talked about cognigents before on our podcast about how they're they're highly viral uh maladaptive thoughts right like the hyper individualism where it's being reinforced by our social media algorithms 
capitalism, our society as a whole. And, and we're trying to crack the code of how, how do you make someone care? Right. And, and honestly, my life's mission, Mel. My life's mission. I care. But honestly, do you believe that the brain damage caused by SARS-CoV-2 infections and the damage that it does to to your your cognitive faculties has something to do with this behavior? Right. Well, Everyone's already in fight or flight. And then they've been they've been uh, injured, infected. They don't quite know what's going on with their body, but hmm, well, I'm getting a little heart palpitations start, here. I'm shorter breath more than usual. The basic level that distress is going to cause you that cognitive load, right? Like even just dealing with the pandemic and dealing with the the um, uh, disparate sort of statements and dealing with seeing what's happening with China and like. People are, are constantly having to try and spin these things. But again, Mel, I would I would push us to think that many people are not thinking about it at that level at all. Checked out because public health gave them the excuse to check out, which is the they problem. They gave them permission. As they long gave as them public permission. health is providing this permission, we are going to have a struggle. And that's where we come back to Milgram, right? That's where yeah. we come back to that study in the obedience of authority is that... <laughs> Um, when people are given that permission to do even very awful acts or even to just do things that they should be taking accountability for, that they do not because they feel that permission from authority. And public health is that authority in this circumstance and has provided those those pathways for people to sort of, I mean, even in their language as we're talking about this, like the exit path to the pandemic, like this time it's going to be those things right um and and misusing the terms immunity debt misusing the terms endemic uh to modify uh these these structures and these thoughts in people's understanding societally so that they can enforce the sort of consent for these things right enforce the 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 degree to which they are allowing it to happen by saying that we also allowed it to happen. That's the point, right? That's what Mm -hmm. they want is to say, well, people wanted this, people wanted to get out and about. So this is what we had to do. But in fact, people were misinformed on, on what that meant. So did they really consent to that? And that is of course where manufactured consent comes in. Right. And then also they, they're shifting the onus of blame, right? By delib by doubling down, saying it's by dirty hands individual public health so then you can just when someone gets sick you can cross off the public health and go well you didn't do it right you didn't wash your hands you dirty surf right you didn't do it right you didn't sort of you didn't make the right decision or the right personal risk assessment in that situation and that's why this happened right it gives them it gives them their exit ramp and that is as if not what a system loves to do right minimize their liability because in the end, it is liability. I mean, Correct. I can't wait till next year when we've had four years of data from actuaries of what's going, what's coming, right? No, but it, none of the data looks good, right? Like no. we, we see like these huge jumps in in cardiac deaths and in in sort of strokes and those sorts of things that relate to the vascular health. There's enough indicators here mm-hmm. that all of us should want to have 
access to sufficient, detailed, um, extensive data. Like all of us should want that, whether you think COVID is a big deal or not, because that is what allows us to assess those questions. And when we don't have the data to do that, it's really hard to keep trying to convince people of one way or the other. And again, that has been manufactured by public health itself. There's no reason for us to not have this data. And in fact, this is the same thing that they're yelling at China for, right? Like China only very recently stopped uh, tracking asymptomatic cases, right? <laughs> right? We didn't, in BC, we didn't even recognize asymptomatic no. cases. No, we ripped all the masks off and put all the kids in schools and says, you do you. Then, right. and oh but but you know just the last couple of days for 24 hours bc public health had almost done the right thing and put a recommendation oh, for masks. Oh, yeah, and then they accidentally <laughs> did it and took it off they, they said, said we accidentally we accidentally posted the former advice and we do not stand by that and you're like oh don't mask okay. in mask in, in public spaces oh okay because yeah. for almost a second, for almost for 24 hours there, we almost managed to do something about the transmissions in, Correct, in the community. Correct, because let's be clear that once again, this is not the first time, this is many times over, Minister Dix went up there and said, we expect an increase in hospitalizations. And they took no action. They opened emergency operations centers which essentially will work to minimize the inpatient load and maximize kicking people out, uh, not necessarily getting the quantity or quality of care that is required based on their situation. They will start making those decisions to move people quicker so that we can move more people in and out because we don't have staff to increase last I checked. This government's tagline has always been fatalities are a part of life. Suck it up, buttercup. Right? They never said, we're going <laughs> to right. no, no. prevent infection. We have a public health officer that when asked about if we need a mask mandate while hospitals are exploding, <laughs> collapsing, says, well, you know, I don't wear a mask on the plane because, like, if I'm alone and away from people and, like, the lone person on a plane. I'm like, yeah, that's totally what most people are dealing with. Right, Bonnie Henry, Dr. Henry, apologies. We'll use her credentials. Um, we fly in private jets all the time, and when we ride the buses, there's no one there. It's like <laughs> they don't care about the prevention because it's not valuable to them. They just they want to undercut that, right? And uh, that's what we've continued to see. So I don't think anything we're seeing is a surprise. It's literally a continuation of like March 2020 on. We are seeing the exact same strategy and it's really bad. Yeah. And upon the heels of this new scary variant, it's more, what are we doing? Oh, we're, we're monitoring this. <laughs> they have eyes on the variants. We're, we're watching to see how many people die. And then, and then after, you know, but nothing Mel, can be done. <laughs> how wild is it? So let's just like, again, zoom out. How wild is it that we are unable to sit down and just have a basic conversation between media and our public health officer about how they account for the fact that more people have died in 2022 than the other years, that more that almost exclusively all of the children that have died were in 
2022. Only two of the deaths occurred before then. All have happened since. And we have more children dying right now, which I won't speak to because I don't have the data and I don't want to, I don't want to talk about anyone's situation either because it's just horrifying as these things happen. But it is, it hasn't stopped either, but nowhere is there a method of accountability? Nowhere is some anyone just allowed to ask Bonnie Henry that question and be expected for her to provide an answer. And this is where I sort of come back to these regulation boards and why we need them and why there needs to be an expectation of ethics and obligations to society when you take such a role in society and have that privilege is you do need to be held to account. You should have to answer any questions that society has about the decisions you've made because these are policies of public health. That's the point. If you're not protecting the public and you're not protecting the vulnerable, which you are mandated to do, then you need to answer for that publicly. This is job security for her. If she does nothing and there's an ongoing pandemic, she never has to leave her six-figure job. Can you imagine getting paid to do absolutely nothing? She just does, you know, uh, media uh, supported interviews with Vance and Steele while they're just support her about their wine festivities and everyone laughs and and pretends like nobody's dying. Right. No, we're not doing that. I'm not doing that. We're living in two different worlds. It's Hunger Games for the rest of us. And they're watching the Hunger Games and drinking their wine. Well, and people that have this privilege, that have the social and financial capital to stand back and, and have access to these protections, stand up for those who don't. Come on. Like, this is a societal responsibility to make sure that other people can survive, let alone thrive. We're not even letting people survive. And that, I feel, is my ethical obligation. I've seen the research to show people who are most impacted by these decisions and these policies. And it is my job to stand up and say that they're not okay. These people in their positions of power and privilege are making decisions that are harming the most vulnerable. And if that puts my license at risk, okay, right? Like, I stand by that. Do you think if people were more aware of the data on the number of children who have died since April of 2022, when they lifted all NPIs and mitigations from schools, that people would realize, hey, there's a lot of damage being done here? Because so many, the regular Canadian is not aware. (laughs) But the regular Canadian doesn't want to know, right? When I bring these conversations up, I am shut down. It does not matter the numbers that I have. It does not matter what I give them. And this is where I come back to the science's falsifiability of theories, right? That you have to be willing to engage with what you think and what you uh, believe in a way that you're willing to show that it's false. And that's not where we're at. People are not following that method of science. That's, that's not where we are. Carlos. Hey, y'all. Um, I just kind of had a quick question um, in terms of, uh, like, vaccines, because that seems to be, like, the real hot-button issue lately. And I'm just kind of 
I've been just asking just random spaces. Um, where would we be at if these uh, vaccines for COVID had never made the scene? Uh, lots more dead people and in the exact same position, I believe. Yeah, it just seems like... Um, I think it's mitigating how bad it's hitting. If we didn't have it, it would just hit harder, right? Like, it's just, it's offsetting some of what's happening, but it's offsetting, it's going to offset less and less as time goes on, right? Yeah. I just, uh, I hear, like, a, like, man, like, back, these vaccines catch, like, a lot of flack, and I'm just imagining, like, or trying to imagine what would have happened, because that seems to be the the scapegoat in a lot of these, like, especially when we're talking sudden deaths or people having these health problems is people chalk it up to the vaccines. And I'm just kind of like, yeah. which, you know, acknowledging that vaccine injuries are a thing too, right? Yep. But I'm just kind of like... Well, and not only, not only are vaccine damage is actually a thing, but I also like to speak to BC at this specifically is that... Um, they very pointedly uh, gave the specific vaccine that was known to have issues in a very specific age group and, and gender to those people um, and refused to sort of uh, be willing to address the issues of that and with the heightened risk of VITT and those things, um, which has fostered even more hatred towards vaccines, right? Because there have been issues yeah, um, and failing to recognize that doesn't help anybody. Um, and they're just continuing to make it worse. Which is kind of like, well, you know, now that the uh, the public trust is starting to diminish, you know, as a consequence of this stuff, I am just worried about like a future pandemic the next time. And, <laughs> oh, you know, oh, Barlos. Oh. <laughs> I mean, if we get swept by something bad, we're so hooped. We're so hooped. Yeah, that's a. Uh... We are so anti. We are so anti protections right now that it doesn't matter if it was something bad and it was killing a ton of people. All of this will hit back so hard in our faces, and that's why we literally sit each day just hoping that doesn't happen. Yeah. Hi, yeah. I mean, it just feels like everything went so fast, you know, that uh, when you ask the question, like, how did we get here? You know, it's just, there's just been so much that has happened and transpired over the last three years, four years. Well, and it's hard to keep, it's, it's as someone that supports vaccines fully and depends on them for to keep me alive, because I'm not a person that was born with a great immune system. Uh, it's, it does give peace, people an increasing reason to also not want to take them when we continue to string this along of like, well, it's a two dose vaccine, it's a three dose vaccine. And Mel and I have talked about that before. And as we see this variant drift and it's less and less effective, right? Um, trying to tell people to take this when it's not as effective, isn't going to be helpful either because people are then still going to be having effects from getting COVID and people are going to believe in it less and less. So all these things are just enhancing the problems that we're going to have even further when something uh, if if something happens that sort of a variant comes that is more severe or does cause these sorts of things, we are in real trouble because of the way that we've talked about this and, and taught people to not take care of themselves and others. Right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it was definitely like a sort of a 
well, actually a, a big problem even before uh, COVID became a thing. Um, but now it just seems like this, uh, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a machine. I mean, I don't know if you guys hopped into some other spaces when they talk about this, but um, there's this, and I don't, I don't want to use the word anti-vax because I know that that does trigger some folks, but um, there's definitely like a movement against this. And it, uh, I feel like it pretty much outnumbers spaces like this one, like on a ratio of like 10 to one, right? Um, and it just, uh, I, I don't know. It's just so, it's so bizarre. But at the same time, you know, there, there are folks who, probably do have these sort of like genetic predispositions or other um, health problems, you know, where this vaccine is, is going to probably harm them more than help them for some folks. So they kind of feel like, okay, well, shit, what, what do I do? Well, and when the messaging has been vax only, right. And then just no other thought to how we as a society actually deal with um, the outcomes of pandemics and how we want to uh, structure that is, we, I struggle as a psychologist uh, to to like not say to people, yeah, you've been given like lots of reasons to not believe what's been told to you, right? Like that, it's hard not to say that at this point because uh, that has happened, and people have sort of been led astray about many of these things. Um, and I, I often, and that's why I often hear tip towards. Uh, blaming those structural things and blaming the systems that are responsible for making these policies because as a society we're not expected to know about this right you're not supposed to know about virology and, and epidemiology and all these things you depend on your public health individuals and professionals to be truthful and accurate in what they say and they've chosen not to do that and this affects all of us and and gives everyone, whether they believe in these things or not, a reason to doubt what is coming out of our authority figures, which is a really big problem. Uh, Cindy, what's up? Hey, how are you? I am alive. Yeah, that's about all we can say, hey? Uh, I just wanted to respond to Barlos and the vaccine injury narrative. While it absolutely does happen, it's been wildly inflated. You know, it's just not happening in the numbers that people um, think or are reporting on their grift that it's happening. You know, it, it, it happens very rarely. Um, and it's, it's just being conflated from a really bad place of disinformation. You know, so uh, it's gaining traction. I've seen it too, but it, it's it's just it's just if we stick to facts it's just not happening in the numbers that these spaces seem to uh want to perpetuate you know well and, and there's an asymptomatic um covid case underlying or that other viruses have been activated you know and it's not really a true vaccine injury they just haven't got to the bottom of what's really causing the symptoms yet well, and that's where the problem, though, of our public health misinformation comes in, right, is that it's when we don't have effective data, when we don't have people that are actually trying to give the data that shows these answers clearly, it allows these theories to come in and take over for these deaths of, of all the excess deaths and the sudden deaths and all this stuff that likely we think could be attributed to COVID. And if we have the data 
appropriate data, we can say whether it is or not. Um, and even if we're more likely to be right here, it doesn't matter to these people because all they need is that permission from what public health is saying to fit it under their worldview, right? And that is what's happening because public health has been a shit show. Oh, absolutely. They just need somebody with a semblance of credentials to hang on to something. And, you know, they're just running with it for this grift, you know. Like the latest thing I think McCullough is going with is that, you know, we can um, shed the mRNA to other people. So you better buy his $60. I saw that. That's been going on for a few years, Cindy. The shedding shedding one has been going on for a few years. First it was if you had covid and then got, you could like shed it, but then it turned into if you got the COVID vaccine, you would shed at them and then get them sick. It was, it's, yeah, it's oh, a now strange it's theory. Shed heart enzymes. Now you can shed oh, okay. heart enzymes. That's his newest. And I'm just, I can't even, like this guy is raking in millions and, you know, um, People like Fox News, like the, he's his hero, and they're like, "But he's a cardiologist, so why is he talking about vaccines then?" <laughs> oh, I'm just waiting for <laughs> Fox News to talk about psychology ethics, so I can deal with that as well in my. Profession. Oh, it's <laughs> so triggering! It's so frustrating. All this disinformation, and you know, it, people conflate it, and they don't understand the nuance, and it's so hard to explain because they're looking at a paper. But they're 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 really not understanding how to extract it in in a way that you know it takes a lot of training and skill to properly go through that. But it's, it's possible like- to do it, and that's the thing is like how many people, including myself, have focused on knowledge translation of scientific information and the ability to impact behavior change. This is a whole area of psychology. Damn it! Like, it's, <laughs> and. Uh, there are strategies to use, but that is not what public health wants to do. Public health does not want to translate that knowledge to us. It was never the goal. So it's like they don't want to use people like us because that's not actually their goal. Well, and, you know, as a, a researcher, there has been a real problem with data sharing uh, in North America, not just Canada, for oh, a long yeah. time leading up to the pandemic. So this isn't a new problem. No, yeah, not at all. So frustrating. It's like, where do we go? Because as you said, we're literally watching everybody else. It's like they're standing in a street and we're screaming, bus, bus, so the bus is going to hit you. And they're like, no, no, it's fine. I, they said, they said it, I wouldn't be hurt if this bus hit me because I had a vaccine. So oh, what fuck, I've decided to do, Cindy, is all I do is I break out my big advocacy sign saying COVID can kill you and wear the brightest outfit I can every day. And I just feel like I'm waving that for the rest of my life. I don't know what the answer is right now. Uh, I keep working towards that with people of how to sort of make that effective behavior change. But it's hard for me to understand how to do that when those who are in the positions of leadership don't have that as their goal. Um, right. So I continue to try and impact at the individual level, right? And that's what we all continue to do are these sort of grassroots trying to impact people everywhere we go, um, which all I can tell myself is hopefully I save a few lives in this because I, I hope we're wrong as hell. I hope by the end of this year when we are talking in December 2024, 2023, 2024, that uh, this is over. That, that that everything's just this magically thing that's gone and I don't have to worry about my family dying and all of that stuff. Wouldn't that be nice? 
Oh, that'd be amazing. I look at pictures from the before times and I just think, geez, I'd give about anything to go back there, you know, but here we are. So we have to find ways to move forward and, and try to help people on the way who don't want to be helped. That's frustrating <laughs> part. But, but I think this is the, this is the part for psychology is like a lot of us, anyone who's worked with like behavior change, but in, in particular in addictions is like, there is these stages of change, right? That there's these aspects to people that um, when people don't want to do something, we can't just drag them into it. It never works. That's just not the way that human psychology works, which is why so many of us at the beginning outlined the strategies that could be helpful, that could work with that. Um, And now there's so much damage. There's so much damage uh, based on what we've done. And And it's so sad. You know, that just leaves us with uh, the only option, you know, is to just hunker down, you know, pretty much just do what we've been doing. And that sucks because it just. uh, The goal is to stay safe with as little damage as we can get to ourselves and our loved ones. And that is a terrible answer to have. But I don't think we have another one. The other the other answer, which we all know, because I'm sure we've thought about it late at night, is we pretend that none of this is happening and we go join the world and we hope to God that we're wrong. Uh, And that, to me, is just not a risk I'm willing to take. Yeah. Yes. No, I mean. The, uh, the, The thing that gets me, too, is, I mean. Uh, I'm someone who's from like a more poor community and like a lot of folks out there are very Mm -hmm. blue collar and they're not going to be concerned at all about like, you know, statistics and science and all that, you know? So it just feels like, okay, we're statistically speaking, we're the first ones on the, on the fucking chopping block, you know? So they're going to be more susceptible to what TV or the internet is telling them. And, um, you know, I, I usually get it from, like, all angles, uh, especially, like, on the vaccine issue. Like, some people give me a hard time, try to make me feel bad because I encourage my family to go get their shots. My roommates, my my little one, you know, and mm-hmm. it's just, I I don't know. It's, it's I don't know. <laughs> it's it's so bizarre it's hard to be a human right now it, it is yeah. the social pressure is immense i mean if you are sensitive to that and you are aware mm-hmm. right especially when you are self-conscious and you walk into a space and you're the only one wearing a respirator right yeah like, me my my dumbass nd self like i call myself dumbass but like i'm nd so for me not to fit in is normal for me because I've never fit in. So I'm going to go wear my, my respirator. I think that's a common pattern among some of the people that have yeah. been uh, at the forefront of some of these activism movements so. is that they have been a little different. Yeah, <laughs> where we, I think the common thread is most of us are neurodivergent. We are trauma survivors. We recognize the patterns of abuse and gaslighting, <laughs> right? And mm. on top of that, we are hyper-focused and hyper-vigilant. Because 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 we're neurodivergent, we read a lot. <laughs> so we are we, we try to pull as much information from all places as possible, right? And but if you have learned math are very aware societal pressures and just I guess any kind of social norm <laughs> I don't have any, I'm I'm a I'm a social what do you call a social cactus right you call yourself a social 
yeah <laughs> uh yeah like yeah i'm just you know like to us we're just like we we've always banged our own drum but the thing is i'm not a and and i think uh people people in here may understand this uh more than people who aren't sort of introverted is i'm not a social cactus because um i don't enjoy humans and i don't enjoy those interactions i i'm a social cactus because it's it's uh, I'm hyper aware of social interactions. I'm hyper aware of my impact on other people and harm and all those sorts of things, which is why I tend to gravitate more towards being by myself, right? Is that I don't have as much to manage when I'm by myself because I am more aware, whereas a lot of people enter social spheres um, and they just sort of exist in it and have fun, but it's, it's next to impossible for me to sort of feel that relaxed in a social setting where I'm not, um, aware and sort of analyzing at that level yes. and that's part of my job yeah. too right is that I'm, I'm a psychologist so that's what I do is I'm sort of analyzing stuff on a on a consistent basis um, but hey Kevin what's up we were chatting earlier oh hello hello yes hello uh, yeah I think uh, you mentioned about uh, neurodivergence right and uh, something about uh, a general trend with the, among the personalities of uh, people who, who go against the green uh, in a good way, of course, you know, because, you know, fringe groups <laughs> sometimes are are to the detriment of uh, the welfare of society. You know? But in terms, I think in our case, uh, yeah, I'd just like to share, yeah, I think, I think it's safe to say that a lot of us do have some form of neurodivergence. Like I myself have ADHD. I was diagnosed at uh, age six, so uh, and that brought along uh, years of uh, of being bullied and uh, misunderstood. You know, uh, especially in my country where you know mental health, the mental health infrastructure is very weak. I think I mentioned that to you already in a DM, uh, but just for the benefit of those who are here, so. I th I think I mentioned it before, like my country is uh, basically copying the let it rip approach of the West. So even the even the physical healthcare infrastructure is already uh, overburdened. So what more the mental health aspect and and I did notice even in my country that uh, people who do to tend to think differently but still have high levels of uh, you know empathy and care for others despite. Uh, them being constantly vilified were the ones who were actually concerned ironically about health like it's ironic that there are people I, I know friends uh, they go they work out they go to gym but they go to gym maskless they work out maskless they have gym fees selfies in the gym and stuff like that they claim to be to be uh, health advocates and yet they can't can't they can't even bother to wear a mask they can't even bother to you know uh, be concerned for other people's health no, they think know? they're fucking bulletproof and, yeah 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 and and Correct. they would actually yeah they would actually body shame me they're like they, they're, they're going to say stuff like you're a hypocrite uh, bro you, you you claim to care about him, but you have a big belly you know you're overweight oh yeah that's definitely like been that. picking up and then I'm telling them like, hey, you know, I've been working on it. You know, if you, if you've seen me before, I was super, I was super, I was overbeast, super obese. You know, uh, I used to be 104 kilograms. I'm, I think, I think being 75 kilograms now is an accomplishment. So shut the fuck up. <laughs>
Like, you know, I wasn't an athlete like you in high school. And for you to say stuff like that, so what? Because you're an athlete in high school, that, that's proof that masks don't work. <laughs> Wait till you get a heart attack all of a sudden, and then the conversation's over. <laughs> you know what I mean? And these are the neurotypical people, you know? And I'm not, you know, it, it just, it's, it's weird. Uh, I think I, I saw an old uh, Twitter thread thread before about neurotypical people actually are the ones who have a higher tendency to act like sheep when it comes to caving into societal and peer pressure. Uh, during the time of let it rip, that's a very, very, uh, it's a very, very disturbing trend. Well, and, and, and it, yeah. it, it seems, it, it makes me laugh because I think about uh, that sort of stereotypical a uh, kid with ADHD that sort of can't uh, get that so social cohesiveness, right? That can't quite get in with the group because they're a little bit off off their rhythm, right? But uh, here we are, all of us with these little bit of atypical rhythms, understanding what's going on, right? Because we are willing to look at it a little bit more. And I agree that uh, atypical ways of thinking and worldviews, whether we call that neurodivergence, ADHD, I, I would throw trauma in there with, with CPTSD, right? Giftedness, all those sorts of things fall into this umbrella of just being willing to uh, engage cognitively with the world in a different way, whether you're sort of testing the hypotheses that you have, right? Is that um, that's what minimizes, I would say, our defensiveness compared to many people in these situations is that it doesn't, we're not afraid of questions and we're not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of uh, seeing if we, we are going to be falsified or seeing if we're wrong because we're very interested to see if we're wrong. We're interested to see what is happening. That's where a lot of this comes from. Um, and what we're seeing in the world, which I think a lot of you are, are sort of highlighting and focusing and seeing, um, is that a, a large piece of the world, and we'd see this out in the stats on personality and stuff like that, too, is that uh, that openness is not necessarily at the forefront, that people tend to seek the information that confirms their worldview um, when you're looking at sort of that neurotypical development. But when we look into those neurodivergent uh, umbrellas, whether it's that giftedness, ADHD, uh, trauma, people start literally thinking about the world in a different way and having different pathways. And it's super creative sometimes, right? Which is uh, brings us to where we are here. Um, I just want to touch on though. I saw John sneak in here, so I want to give him a chance to to speak as well. Hey, thank you. Uh, as just piggybacking on what Kevin said about how you see people who typically care about people uh, and who are you know health conscious and all that, like people going to the gym without masks. Uh, one of the things I've seen here in New Brunswick that was quite shocking to those of us that are still uh, taking the pandemic seriously because it's still going on uh, was a, there was a group that formed on Facebook to uh, protest the government and their handling of the healthcare system. And so of course we all jumped in there and we wanted to help and very quickly we're all kicked out because <laughs> the, this group that wants to fix the hospital system that's overwhelmed and stressed didn't want to talk about COVID. No, we don't talk about COVID. Some people think it's over. We'll talk about anything but COVID. We'll talk about the flu. We'll talk about RSV, but not COVID. And I was just, that was stunning to me in that you can have someone uh, 
I don't know if I tend to use words I don't always fully understand, but cognitive dissonance, I guess, maybe that um, like I'm going to I want to fix the healthcare system, but I refuse to acknowledge this huge problem that the people in the healthcare system say is part of the problem. And it's just, uh, you know, it's uh, really shocking to me. So, I, you know, I just wanted to say to Kevin, you're not the only one noticing that. Uh Marlos, one of the things you're saying about we still have to hunker down and the psychological effects and all of that is, I know one of the things I'm struggling with is I'm very comfortable hunkering down to the point where I won't exit that even when I have to. So I know for me, like, uh, I'm a very heavy man. Uh, I run into that thing all the time. Like somebody the other day tweeted at me that I should be more worried about getting the vaccine for Wendy's than COVID. Uh, so like I'm almost 400 pounds. So, um, and heart disease runs in my family. And, you know, I was talking with my wife the other night and um, this is sort of the scenario that popped into my head that if I was having chest pains or if I knew I was having a heart attack, I probably wouldn't want to leave that hunker down just because how bad are, I know you guys have, uh, NBC have struggles with your healthcare system too, but uh, you know my dad had a heart attack and was in the hallway for three hours before he was seen. You know, obviously it wasn't a widowmaker heart attack or anything like that. But I guess my point is, is that I would be laying on the floor having this heart attack, and what I was thinking would be going through to my mind is, no, just leave me here, and what happens happens, because I don't want to go to the hospital and get COVID which could just lead to me having another heart attack and I die anyway. Let's cut out the middleman here. Just leave me here. And if I go, I go. And so I, I just, I guess that's part of the things like uh, that I struggle with is that I don't even want to leave for things that normal people would leave for. And I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not encouraging anybody to ever leave it. Uh, because I don't want to ever leave it. So I guess I don't really know what I'm getting at other than I guess that's, I just wanted to share what I'm struggling with right now. I think you're doing a beautiful John or a beautiful job, John, of highlighting how stuck many of us feel right now, right? That um, I, I said earlier, I was laughing to my husband and I said this to someone else is like, I'm a social cactus, but even I'm getting a little squirrely at this point. Like even I want to sort of, um, I want to forget for a moment and that's what it is I think is is caught up in my wanting to is it's not that I necessarily want to just socialize or go out but I want this peace that everybody else seems to have that is not us that they can go and just be without uh, apparently considering the impact of their actions and in those uh, frail moments in my challenge moments as a human, I want for that too. I want to forget ignorance seems like bliss. Uh, but then my rolling brain full of the, the things we just talked about starts rolling of, but I would never harm anyone. I don't want to do that. I've seen the evidence. I've seen what I've seen. I watched my grandma. I've seen my mom. I know what's happening. And you know what's happening. And we're not going to let them tell us otherwise. Yeah, very much. Like, I I can't even, the things I used to take joy in, like, you know, like watching, I love watching sports. I love hockey. I love football. And 
I was watching hockey uh, tonight, and I was just like, I found myself, I wasn't even watching the play, and I was like, oh my god, is that a mask? And I'm pausing the TV to rewind it, to not watch a hockey play, but to see if that person in the stands is actually wearing a mask. And I'm like, holy shit, yeah, they are, that's awesome, and I'm more excited. It's almost like I'm playing this giant real-life game of Where's Waldo, and when I see a mask, I get super excited. Well, because we're desperate to see that somebody cares, that somebody sees it, that we're not crazy, that this isn't a waste, that this isn't all in our heads, which is what they keep telling us. This is the point. Oh, it's definitely not. I mean, I I, uh, I look uh, to just see, like, just the, the, the capacity of, like, the, the availability in hospitals just locally around here, and I see... You know, 96%, 98%, one of them's 100% right now uh, full, mm-hmm. like the ICUs are full. And it is yeah. something that's just been uh, normalized around here. And it's it's definitely not in your guys' heads. So don't don't fall for that for a second. Uh, oh, and I agree. You know, I agree. But I think it's important to recognize that so many of us have those moments, right? Yeah. That it becomes overwhelming to feel like 99% of the world is looking at you like you've got tinfoil on your head and are making no sense when we see it all around us it is crazy making yeah and I mean also to add to that too I mean I'm pretty sure many of us want to go out and do have fun too right I mean we still want to go out and have a good time we want to go see shows I mean I used to I used to like going to bars and shooting pool with random folks I I like to go to like uh concerts and stuff like that but i know now that those are very high risk activities now and Mm -hmm. you know i I work at schools you know i'm gonna be around a lot of kids so i think that it's there's a higher responsibility on my part to just Mm -hmm. not get sick and spread it and by the way i have to work tomorrow or just coming off a vacation and uh, this is like a new thing for me now where I literally just get like sweaty hands just before I have to even go into these places. And I, I that was never a thing. So uh, it just it sucks. Yeah, I can't say that my normal anxiety has not been extra impacted by the pandemic, but that's not because it's unreasonable. And that's what I keep telling people is like, uh it's not unreasonable to want physical safety. It's not unreasonable uh, to want a society that is valuing our most frail. And we all in this space have seen that has not been the case, right? That people are not being valued in these systems. We can say that, uh, we can relate that to COVID and how much that's been impacted, but we've also seen that outside of COVID and it continues to extend and COVID is one sort of variation of it. Um, but I guess, you know, we're okay. We have about 15 minutes left. So I'm trying to figure out how big I want to talk here uh, is we have a responsibility. And, and I feel like most people in here probably feel that too. And that's why they're sort of in these, these conversations and engagements is um, when we know better, it is our responsibility to do better. This is not, you know, in our society, we cannot keep saying that things can be better and then ignore the solution to that because it's challenging or it's difficult or it takes effort. Um, At least I don't want to be part of the world that does that. And because I don't want to be part of the world that does that, 
I refuse to give up on this and I continue to show up every day because if the answer is that we might lose when we resist, okay, right? And I saw that post today. But if we don't resist at all, we lose, right? And uh, we have lost and I've lost people in my own family to this and, and outside of this, whether we're talking about the drug toxicity dress, whether we're talking about long-term care, whether we're talking about all these vulnerable populations is this is a breaking point of society and COVID pushed us to that point. And I hope to God every night when I go to bed that there's enough of us that can change the world. That's all, that's what I'm hoping when I go to bed at night. Also, I was going to ask, are you guys going to get uh, your uh, your stoggles uh, for this next variant? So I have uh, one. I have prescription ones that make me look like I'm driving a motorcycle. It's really cool. <laughs> And by cool, I mean everybody makes fun of me. But I don't really care. So if anything, if anything, I have developed such a level of self-confidence that I have never had in my life because of the pandemic. I was always a wallflower, um, despite what people think of me, is that like when it came to personal conflict, I very rarely had it. I, I would always fight for sort of a client or someone vulnerable, but I would never, ever stand up for myself. That was a real... A challenge that I had and well damn if the pandemic hasn't taught me to tell someone to fuck right off like whoo thanks for that I got that going for me (laughs) that's good yes to answer your question yes I am wearing goggles if in prolonged indoor spaces because it increases the chance of a COVID virus going and infecting your eyeballs and living in there and making you blind Well, and I have seen some of the preliminary research that seems to indicate that glasses wearers, um, not even necessarily the goggles, but just glasses wearers have a reduced incidence, it seems to, just because of that uh, less surface area of the eye actually being accessed for some of it, which is interesting. Not, again, not final or anything, uh, but seems to indicate. And again, if we're just talking about precaution, right? I mean, let's just remind everyone again that SARS-CoV-2 is a is a biosecurity luxury pathogen. It is in the same category as anthrax. So if you knew you were going into a party of anthrax, would you wear goggles and mask? I think the answer Well, and Mel, even if we go back a step to just like the flu, before the pandemic, we weren't actively trying to get the flu. We like recognized flu season and we had these big things about getting your flu shot and anyone at the hospital who refused to get a vaccine had to mask up. We had all these like leveled things to deal with the risk of the flu because of how much it impacted our elderly population. And we still lost people to that, but we had ways that we tried to mitigate that. We have completely scrubbed that as well and pretty much been like, no, we'll just take the extra, the extra deaths of the vulnerable. Maybe, maybe that, that could be the, Cost. Maybe that could be the, uh, the the form of protest that we might need is just people who are COVID conscious to just show up to work one day in bunny suits all the way up mm-hmm. from now on mm-hmm. just just to like take a stand to just people are going to be asking oh why are they wearing the bunny suits why are they all dressed up like they're working in a bio safety level three environment because we're trying to survive a bio safety. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that should be the the wild part is though, and the wild part is is that I I 
undoubtedly know of the work situations, including medical settings, where the workers will be reprimanded for doing that. That is insane. Yeah, well, here in BC, they're not allowed to wear anything above a baggy blue. They'll get in trouble. That is insane. Are you kidding me? So I will give no other information uh, to protect this person's uh, identity and everything else. But I have spoken with a worker recently that is repro- is like in discussions, perhaps maybe let's say about some of the content posted, which would lean towards protections as a as a healthcare worker. That's what we're working to reprimand at this point. That's crazy. Yeah, now yeah. At, at the hospitals, uh, the last time that I had to go to the ER, they had me take off my N95 and had me switch out for a uh, surgical, surgical blue. Yeah. And I was like trying to explain I- to the guy like, dude, what, what? But they don't know. And that's this is where we come back to that public health messaging, right? Is like having a conversation with the door greeters at AHS about why I want to wear my proper mask and not where the surgical goes nowhere because they have no idea what I'm talking about when I say COVID is airborne, right? They're just like, who's this Who's this person sort of just talking about stuff? Like, it's uh, the ability of the misinformation to sort of uh, penetrate all levels of society, including our medical facilities, is just horrifying. And, and when we think about the fact of um, the rate, you know, I've seen, you know, the estimates in, in some of the provinces, including BC, of like hospital acquired cases accounting for up to like 20, 25% of, of cases still. Think about that. That's our hospitals. Right? Initially, we were working so they didn't collapse. Now we're letting them collapse and we're letting them become um, infection pools for our most vulnerable that are trying to get the services that they need that have nothing to do with the pandemic now. Yeah, they totally okayed putting COVID positive people in the same room as COVID, COVID negative people as long as they had to Correct. Okay, let's be clear. In BC, they cleared it a while ago, but like they were always doing it, which we knew and we had sort of evidence of the entire time. So it it wasn't a, a lack of, of activeness on their part for, for mixing this messaging. And well, we're reaping the benefits of that. We have a population that has a, a, a much, not even, they have... L- not less information than they did at the beginning of the pandemic, but they have been imbued with so much misinformation that we're worse off than we were at the beginning of the pandemic, which is something you and I talked about, Mel, that if we didn't actually figure out the language and the um, specificity of the behavior change we wanted and to define that and to talk openly with the population about that, that we then failed to do anything and we've gone backwards now. What's up, freaking? Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out with the mask argument for the hospitals, because they've brought it up here, I think Peter Bros saying that you need to wear one they provide. But when you look at the actual public health recommendations, I think BC's kind of similar. It's not great. Like I'm looking at it now, but it says masks are most effective when fitted. Ours in Ontario says, like uh, basically it says wear a respirator or like a proper mask by their wording. It doesn't say like an N95 or whatever, but it says fitted and all that other crap. So that would be helpful in your argument when you go up there. You can say, hey, like that doesn't actually follow health regulations kind of thing. That was my plan if I have to go to the hospital anyways. Oh, so the really fun part that about these policies that they have about stuff like that. So uh, the people accessing hospitals, clients could probably easily make that argument. People wouldn't give them too much flack. But at the staff level, 
they have made uh, staff essentially submit to what they call point of care assessments so that they have to uh, describe the situations in which they're in and why they warrant the fitted N95 versus uh, just having the standard surgical mask because in the policies uh, that they've outlined in some of the other documents, uh, they equate uh, the outcomes of surgical masks with uh, fitted N95s. So they say it's uh, indistinguishable in terms of outcomes. So it should be up to the personal worker. But it's not actually up to the personal worker because you have to apply for that point of care assessment if you want to use the upper level of protection, which is wild. Yeah, I'm trying to get people here to do work. So I, that's one thing I actually know a relative, like, an abnormal amount about because I'm the one they always go, Hey, you're the safety guy now. And I'm like, I don't want to do <laughs> yeah. it. Right. Cause I just know, I just remember the rules. Like I remember driving rules and here the way they've worded our regulations, pretty much everybody can refuse work now because they have a specific mask basically worded there and our worker rights covers that kind of stuff. And on top of that, it's a public place. They have to make it accessible now because of the way they've worded the laws, even though they're behind on it. Cause Ontario has actually really screwed that up, but just there's a whole bunch of laws that basically if we like, point at them they basically like oh shit but it takes people actually doing it mm -hmm. people have to be willing to go in and say hey no i won't work now with a general strike the issue with that is that you need to explain to people hey you're not gonna get paid but with a work refusal at least in ontario you are paid because the problem is they, they have, you can keep escalating as a worker you can just keep saying no no the ministry of labor can come in but the ministry of labor to argue with you would have to then point at those public health recommendations which are not actually um optional for employers in ontario because they're there and they say it's, it's basically like, hey, this is how you let sick people in your place. Workers or employers in Ontario are obligated to do it. So it's kind of like this loophole where that's what this is why BC removed it. Mm -hmm. Why they pulled off the mask recommendations because now yeah. employers are screwed yeah. because it points back at them as being liable for the whole thing. So yeah. that's why I'm watching Ontario now because I think Ontario is going to try to do the same thing. It just seems like something they would do. But essentially, because the government's tried to protect themselves, they've screwed their donors now. 100%. So that's essentially what's going on in my head. I'm trying to convince people, hey, if you refuse work, because like teachers, teachers could just say, no, I'm not going to work. But it would take like a group of them doing it. And it would be if you did it everywhere, they don't have enough Ministry of Labor inspectors to go in. So the employers would basically be forced if they wanted their workers to return to work. The only option would be to implement masks that fit the description. Well, so you'd, I mean, but you'd have to, it's, it's hard to convince people to do that. It just has to be enough people to, to upset the place and make it not run. Absolutely. I agree. I agree that and that's sort of what I, I hope we move towards and really general strike. But uh, that's my hopes in the, in the dark of the night um, is that uh, we need people that are sort of willing to do that. But again, when there's such misinformation among the general population, including even among our healthcare workers and what they're sort of willing to engage with, that becomes really difficult to get enough people on board that they'll they'll sort of be willing to do that. But BC has been a pickle, right? Like she's been right up in those policies and rewording them to make it so impossible for people to do things. And that's included. I believe that we've had at least one, but I think there's a second one out now in terms of human rights tribunals within BC that have supported those masks that people were trying to get. And yet they have, uh, she sort of refused to acknowledge that. Um, and I, there's, I'll just point out in terms of you bringing up Ontario, something that I've noticed, which is that it continues to be to this day that a lot of people are refusing to acknowledge that BC has had these policies that have been just as harmful as the other provinces because they have an NDP government. And I'm sorry to say that is that has nothing to do with what we're seeing. Um, John Horgan's government was devastating while he was in 
control of this pandemic, similarly to the conservative governments. And I've had the um, the cross living of both BC and Alberta within the pandemic. And I can tell you, working in hospitals on both sides of that is that the policies were the exact same. The NDP was just much more quiet about them and didn't uh, do it so loudly because they're not the UCP, but the end result has been the exact same. This is across governments across this country, and we're getting pushed to private health care right now, and it's falling quickly, right? This is this is the outcomes of this, and as someone who's sort of working in community mental health and, and among hospital systems, it's not good. Where we're headed is not good. The way I keep trying to explain it to people is that all three options we get, regardless of what province you're in, regardless of what level of government, all three options nowadays are all capitalists. Correct. When I was younger, they weren't all capitalists. They actually supported things like um, health care and so forth. And I noticed a switch around 2001 after we got involved with Americans a little bit more than mm -hmm. we wanted to when they threatened mm -hmm. us. And that's when all of a sudden the Ontario Liberals were like, well, we can't afford eye care anymore. And I was like, wait, what? And then okay. now the Ontario Conservatives are like, well, we can't afford child, care, or child eye care. And it's like, wait a second here. Like, I see what you're doing. I'm not stupid. So. Right. It continues, but um, we're near two hours here, so I know we want to get off because I do have to go to work in the morning back at those clinics. So um, we will be meeting weekly. That is what we're aiming for in 2023, and Mel and I have confirmed sort of this time and the state range. So we will be back next Sunday at uh, the time of 8.30 uh, Mountain Standard Time or 7.30 Pacific Standard Time. And we will be continuing these chats and bringing sort of the data that I am seeing across the time because um, the last year I tried really hard to affect uh, people's individual behavior change. I put a lot into my networks around me to try and give them the information that they needed. And like most of you, um, I have seen no change with that. So this year, what I'm trying is to expand the networks that we've been building across the pandemic and to give as much truth as I can in a uh, not uh, warm and welcome way because I feel like that is what I have to offer right now and I can't give much else. So I think that's the most useful way of, of me to do this is to at least uh, use the knowledge and privilege and capital that I have to uh, educate where I can and, and I'm happy to sort of talk about different topics if people want to send me info um happy to sort of do that but other than that we will uh say goodbye for this week mel any last thoughts um i just want to say thank you to all our listeners here wow it's more than the three people in the basement <laughs> oh yeah oh gosh no don't make me look i'll sweat oh, I but i just computer so i don't have to for spending your sunday evening uh. with us thank you so much and uh chris and i will be doing this again like she said and we'll see you real soon yeah see you in a week Good night, Bye. Thank you.